This is Jessica Ortner, and I'll soon be joined by my brother Nick. Our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going through a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. And we are back with episode number three. Hey, Nick. Jess, what is going on? I feel like we're flying by. I can't believe it's number three already. I feel like I have to talk to you every week now. <laughs> we do talk like every day. So. Well, I know, but this is like extra on top of what it was before. Yes. So. Well, well at yeah. least we have other guests to make our conversations a lot more entertaining. We get to talk about other people. We and do. I am really excited. I always say that I'm excited for every guest, but I am. <laughs> well, you should be because we pick the guests. Because so. we pick the guests. <laughs> this is basically, this whole podcast is an excuse for me to get to talk to my favorite people and to learn more. It's a good, good, good strategy. Right. So I'm happy to bring everyone along with me. And today we're speaking to Ryan Holiday. This is someone who might be completely new to our audience, which is why I'm particularly excited about bringing him in because I think he's going to have a really fresh way of looking at things. He is, he's written three books in the last three years. He's only, I think, 27. At 19, he dropped out of college. He started to apprentice under Robert Greene, who's the author of The 48 Laws of Power. Uh, he then became, the, this is crazy, the director of marketing at American Apparel. And he is really famous for his strategies, media strategies, and life hacks. So he's been covered by a ton of media. And the thing that I love about Ryan is he's he's really into philosophy. And I think philosophy is something that we need to start talking more about because it's not this stuffy thing that you only talk about within a, a college room. I took a very, very boring philosophy class in college. And I remember nothing of it. Right? But yeah. you are a big reader. You read a lot of biographies. You you love philosophy. I mean, wouldn't you say, I mean, we don't stop to think about it, but when you do stop to think about all the books you read, wouldn't you say that you're really into philosophy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, philosophy has a bad rap. You know, and when we think of philosophy, we think of Aristotle and Socrates and boring college classes, really. Um, so, but you know, and here's the thing about I think most people think of philosophy as something that's just out there, like, oh, just ask these questions about these big concepts in the world. And I think what Ryan does from what I've seen of his work, and I don't know him well, you know him a lot better, uh, is that he brings it down to earth, right? So he yeah. makes it applicable to our lives because that's what I'm interested in. I, you know, I don't want to have the college class discussion that I had about these way out there concepts where it starts making your brain hurt. I want to talk about philosophy and say, how does it affect my life. Yeah, exactly. And when it comes to philosophy, there's there's current philosophers as well. It doesn't always have to be an ancient study. You know, even yeah. like last year I read or a few years ago, I read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which blew my mind that Benjamin Franklin wrote an autobiography and I wasn't made to read it in school. But you know that he's not really current either. Just Well, yeah, but he's not Greek. Like he's not <laughs> no, like Marcus know, Aurelius. Know. You know, like he's more current than but certain he is 200 years old. Yeah, I agree. It's true. He's still kind of old. There are I thought definitely... Benjamin Franklin was our last president. Yeah. Is that? They were at Benjamin Franklin and then Obama. Didn't Obama beat Ben? No. Yeah, I thought I think that's I think that's accurate. I think you got it right, Jess. Well, in the history of this planet, Benjamin Franklin isn't that old when it comes to philosophy, I'm yes, saying. And there are people you. nowadays. I some people, you know, I think Mike Dooley looks at himself as a philosopher, our last guest. I know Robert Holden speaks about that. We're going to have him as a guest in the future. So, you know, there are so many I think the thing about philosophy is is taking a step back from life, studying it, but What's so cool about these philosophers, what I find interesting is, I don't know if all of them intended to be philosophers. I think they really were looking at how to improve their own lives. And a lot of them had journals and wrote about it. And And when we look at human history, we realize that we all have moments of fear and dread and joy and love. And the human experience throughout history isn't all that different. 
Yeah, 100%. Did you know that Ben Franklin was the president of the Pennsylvania Philosophical Society? I did not know that. I thought you read the autobiography. I did, but I didn't know that. Did you know (laughs) that he worked at a printing press and everyone used to drink beer all the time because that was the safest thing to drink because you couldn't drink water um, for sanitation reasons. But people thought beer made you stronger and better. And Benjamin Franklin was like the one person who was like, I don't know. I don't think this is accurate and would not drink beer um, when he was working and people would make fun of him and think it was very odd. But I mean, can you imagine? You're just working. By four o'clock, everyone's drunk. (laughs) Wait, hold on. So you're saying beer does not make you stronger and smarter. It does not. But do you see how even in modern day, there's people who are like, yeah, beer. Like, it's manly. It makes me strong. I think we still like, you know, sense that. Anyway, back to Ryan. Yeah, back to Ryan. So what are you going to ask Ryan? I mean, I know you have a lot of questions, but what do you most want to learn from him? So Ryan's really into stoicism, which I find really interesting and in Stoicism, I, I honestly don't know very much about it, except that it was something that was founded in Athens. And what I understand, it's like the, the basis is is being really level-headed, that no matter what happens, not having a strong emotion either way. Mm. And I think that Stoicism might get a bad rap of just, it means that you're a robot. It means that you yeah. don't feel. But from what I've read of Ryan's writing, I think that there is uh, so much wisdom and I see that there are so many similarities from what Ryan teaches to people like Pam Grout that we're going to have on next week and Mike Dooley, people who from the outside world look like they're all about positive thinking and optimism, when in reality, what I see them teaching is non-judgment, is the more that we can release our emotions and our attachment to things, the easier life is and the more uh, we're able to go into a flow. I love it. Should we hear from Ryan? Yep, let's talk to Ryan. I want to talk about Bucket and Biscuit. Okay. Which are your two goats? Yeah, I'm actually looking at them right now. They're right next to my window. That's amazing. So there are these little goats. They have their own Instagram account. Do you know it off the top of your head? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm not the keeper of the goat Instagram. (laughs) That would be your wife, Sam, who texts me every day with a story about the goats. Yeah, actually, this morning they uh, they unplugged the water heater conveniently after I'd gotten out of the shower. But uh, yeah, like she went to take a shower and there was no hot water, and the goats had unplugged it in the around the back of the house. Um, they of course had no idea this is what they'd done, but it was pretty funny. I mean, they are so mischievous, wouldn't you say? They're, yeah, they're like really dumb dogs, but then they also kind of have like the personality of a cat. So like. You have to be worried, weirdly, with the goats, like they might like kill themselves on accident. <laughs> or yeah, you by like jumping on your head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so they're they're one's a Nigerian dwarf, and the other is a uh, is just a pygmy goat, and they're two. They're about a year old, and they're just like the two cutest, funniest animals of all time. What is one of the greatest lessons you've learned from having goats? Um. Trying to think. So I would say one of them, of course, was like, you should just do ridiculous things. Like deciding to get a go was probably a super reckless decision that made no logical sense. (laughs) Um, That ended up being the source of like a lot of joy and happiness and fun. Um, And then I think one of the other things that we found is like, so again, we just sort of got them on this total whim um, and it ended up being awesome. And then everyone has told us like how they've always wanted to do this, how they're like super jealous, um, how they wish that they could do it. And like, I mean, you've been to our house. We have a tiny yard. Um, like it's enough for goats, but we have a very small yard. Like it's it's not as if the goats were incredibly expensive and the upkeep is expensive. You just realize that people say that they want things in life and they're really jealous when other people have those things not jealous in a bad way but like you know that they wish that they could have what other people have and then in terms of actually making that a reality it's 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 much easier than they think and yet they don't do it anyway i think that's mostly because we have rules in our head about what life should be like and a dog (laughs) and a cat is within those rules and a goat just seems a little out there yeah, but I mean, I think that I think that's totally true. But you even see this like with dogs. Like um, my sister, who I obviously love a lot, really wants a dog, 
but she doesn't have a dog. And I just, I don't understand <laughs> how, like the, the idea of like wanting something and then not getting it. I don't understand. And, and not because like you should spoil yourself, but it's like people are like, Oh, I've always wanted to go there. Like they'll say that about like some place as if, you know, that place is like behind the iron curtain and it's like impossible to get there. And if you actually ask them, you're like, okay, so what tangible steps have you taken towards making that a reality? They immediately have like a million excuses. And like you said, sometimes they're rules, but I, I feel like people don't give themselves a lot of things that they deserve or want or say that, you know, they wish they had um, for pretty spurious reasons. And that's actually a really brilliant transition to start talking about your book, <laughs> really. Okay. Well, actually, and, and before we even go into your book, I want to talk about philosophy for a second. I know it's something that I've always been very passionate about. I was talking to my brother before we recorded like a little bit of an intro, and he was talking about mm -hmm. how I think he had like a traumatic experience around philosophy in college, which I think a lot of people have. Sure. I think a lot of people love philosophy. I just don't think they know that they love philosophy or they or that they even know what they're studying is philosophy. So how do you, you know, you are someone who you're really passionate about learning. What is your view on what philosophy really is and why it's something that you think everyone should have in their lives? Yeah, so I think obviously the stereotype of philosophy is like what you learn in a college classroom, which is both boring, um, complicated, and has no tangible or beneficial as uh, like you know benefit to your actual life. Um, which of course is is partly what philosophy is. It's it's what a lot of modern philosophy is. But you know, for for most of ancient history, philosophy was a sort of practical set of of exercises or ways of thinking that could, you know, help you live your life better. It, it's not necessarily writing books or, you know, creating an entire school of philosophy. Like Socrates, probably the most famous philosopher, he never wrote any books, right? He never had a school. He was just this smart guy that walked around and asked people provocative questions. So the, I think the stereotypes of philosophy turn a lot of people off. And it's, it's funny because, like, there's plenty of people who would read a self-help book and um, never pick up a book of philosophy because they feel like they don't have time for that. Then there's plenty of people who would never pick up a self-help book because, you know, they think it's too superficial or, or it's, you know, it's just, like, bullshit or whatever. Meanwhile, philosophy is there with substance, history, you know, timelessness. And it's actually designed to help people live a better life. And so um, this, the school of philosophy that I am most interested in is, is Stoic philosophy. And I, I did an interview somewhat recently with this um, philosophy professor at, um, in, in New York City. Um, I think he's at Cal State, uh, one, or sorry, one of, one of the SUNYs. And um, he, I was asking him, he's like, why don't college professors talk about Stoicism as much as they talk about the other more complicated philosophers. And he was like, well, that's the thing. Stoic philosophy is so simple and straightforward and practical that it's not as fun to teach. And so I think, I think this, again, these are just some of the reasons why philosophy has this reputation as being academic and impractical, which is really unfair and I think you know, prevents people from getting what they can out of it. Right. Well, then let's get into Stoicism, because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that don't know the first thing about it. Yeah. So um, I would say probably the average person there as familiar with Stoic philosophy as maybe the name Marcus Aurelius. And if that doesn't ring any bells, maybe they've seen the movie Gladiator and they remember <laughs> some of the lines from the movie. But so the, the most prominent Stoic philosopher is Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor, who was in love with philosophy, um, who, who sort of, who, who every day he, he wrote in this sort of private journal, like thoughts, um, for how to be better at his job, how to be a better person, how to be more honorable, how to be more fair, how not to give in to the temptations of, of success and power and all these things. And that book survives to us and we can read it. And it, it's a book that changed my life when I first was exposed to it. What well, turns out, Marcus Aurelius was introduced to philosophy by one of his tutors. And he was given this book, uh, uh, basically lecture notes, from another philosopher named Epictetus. And Epictetus was a former slave 
who'd actually been banished from Rome by another emperor who was afraid of philosophy. So in Stoic philosophy, what's so interesting is you have the two most prominent proponents were on the one hand an emperor who was the most powerful man in the world, and then on the other hand you had this slave who was essentially powerless, and they both are talking about the sort of same way of living, the same way of thinking about life, um, and, and they provide the sort of same lessons, and that, that school of philosophy has been one that has sort of been obscure throughout history, but has, has, has influenced a lot of really great individuals throughout the centuries. Right. Well, what's crazy about Marcus Aurelius is that he, I mean, people looked at him like a living god. And sure. here he is having the, the, a, almost a conversation with himself to try to be a better person. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of exactly what he's doing. He's telling, he, he's when he did something wrong during the day, he would, he would write a reminder about maybe how he could be different. How, if he caught himself complaining, or if he caught himself um, rushing to judgment, um, or, or any number of things that he experienced in his reign. And, and you know, we, we tend to think of the Roman emperors as being, you know, universally bad people, and, and most of them were. In Marcus Aurelius's reign, it's so fascinating. He's, he's picked as a young boy. He, he's not in any way, like, hereditarily uh, um, entitled to the throne. Um, and the emperor Hadrian sees something in this young boy, um, adopts a, a, a man who then adopts Marcus Aurelius as his son to set in motion a, a, a succession chain where, where Marcus Aurelius could, could uh, assume the throne. Marcus Aurelius, all he wants to do is be a philosopher, but he sees that he's chosen for this position of responsibility. He takes, um, he, you know, he, 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 he decides to take it. But here's what he does. His first act as becoming emperor is he 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 makes his stepbrother co-emperor because he feels it would only be fair. And so it's like, it, to me, it's so amazing to think, okay, this person is given essentially unlimited power. They can do whatever they want. The world is theirs. And the first thing he does is say, this is too much for me. I want to share it with someone else. And so it's He's this really remarkable person, and and we have his like totally private thoughts and notes to learn from two thousand years later, and I I just love that. So he started to study Stoicism before he became emperor. Yeah, as as a as a young man, he studied philosophy. This is sort of any uh young, any prominent Roman citizen would have been um, schooled not in like a university or a high school or something, but through private tutors. And one of his teachers was a student of Epictetus, who was the great uh, Stoic philosopher. And that's how we think he was introduced to Stoicism. Right. So if you could describe Stoicism, just the main principles, what's the basic gist? Um, the, I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot. And it's not, unlike some of the schools of philosophy, it's not this like systemic um, explanation of the universe. Mm -hmm. But I would say some of the core tenets are this idea that... Um, there's no good or bad. There's only how we think about the world. And that's not a moral judgment that they do think there's like right and wrong. What they're saying is that um, human beings take external events and put their interpretations on them and that those interpretations make life more difficult or easier. And so the Stoics try to think about things really objectively and clearly. They're, they're always trying to focus on like the sort of truth of an event rather than maybe what our interpretation, our instinctual reaction might be. Um, the Stoics were also big on sort of accepting life as it happens to you and making the most of it. There's a Latin phrase um, which, which comes from the Stoics, although not directly, this idea of amor fati or a, a sort of a love of fate. So the, the Stoics would say, you know, if something bad happened to you, a Stoic would say, um, no, this is good that it happened to me because I'm strong enough to deal with it. Or it's good that it happened to me and therefore it didn't happen to somebody else that I love. Or it's good, it, it's good that it happened to me because now I'm going to use it as an opportunity to do X. So basically Stoicism is this sort of... Um, system for dealing with the adversity and unpredictability of the world and thriving in it. And I think that's why you see so many of the Stoics are, you know, prominent uh, 
generals, they're prominent statesmen, they're prominent writers or, um, you know, prominent political advisors. And then throughout history, you see, you know, stoic athletes or, you know, stoic, um, uh, um, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, stoic entrepreneurs, stoic businessmen, people who, who have difficult, stressful lives love this philosophy because it helps them thrive in that environment. So is what's the difference between Stoicism and something like Buddhism, which sounds a bit familiar when you're describing Stoicism? Yeah, so, so it's interesting. My book, I, I titled my book, The Obstacle is the Way, which comes from a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, you know, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Um, so I shorten that to The Obstacle is the Way. There's actually also a Zen uh, saying, which is, the obstacle is the path. So the the difference between the two philosophies is that they they originated on totally different continents um, in in totally different eras, totally independent of each other. And they, even though they had no interaction, they sort of honed in on a lot of the same central truths. Now, there's certain differences to Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, but I think at their at their core, what what they try to say is like, look. We don't control this this world around us. What we control is how we respond to that world. We control how we change and adapt to that world, and that you're you're sort of better off to be kind of strong in the things that you do control, um, and and a lot more flexible and fluid and open to those things that you don't control. Right, that makes sense. When I was talking earlier to Nick, as I was reading your book, one thing dawned on me. I am interviewing a lot of self-help experts, and I think the field of self-help sometimes gets this bad rap, and people think that it's all about just thinking positive and, you know, just fluffy positivity. And the more that I interview different uh, experts, the one thing I realize is, yes, do they tend to lean on let's think positively? Sure. But the biggest theme I see is letting go of judgment as to whether things are good or bad. Sure. No, totally. Um, I think here's the problem: if if you're overly positive about stuff all the time, you're you're not that that can be just as bad as being overly negative, right? So what the Stoics are trying to focus on is just seeing things for what they are. Like the Stoics would say, "This happened," rather than "This happened and it's unfair," or "This happened and I'm so lucky," or "This happened and I'm." so much better off because of it. Like, you know, in if you lived in, in in ancient Rome at that time, sort of in the decline and fall of the of the Roman Empire, you were living in a very unpredictable world, right? An earthquake could happen and you wouldn't understand why. Um, you know, a a, a change in, in politics or or a regime change could mean a a series of purges or executions. The plague could happen, right? Any number of really seemingly awful, unpredictable events could happen. And so I think what the Stokes were looking for was this sort of philosophy that that helped them manage this unpredictable, seemingly unfair world and not become jaded and unhappy because of it. They wanted to be able to still enjoy life and still appreciate things, but also not... um, not be caught off guard when when the sort of winds shift. Yeah, like not get caught up in like an emotional hot, like a hijacking. As we sure. all know, sometimes we get scared or we we feel something and we feel out of control and we feel hijacked by that emotion. Yeah, totally. And I mean, look, self-help is an interesting genre. It's not as old as people think, right? The first self the first self-help book was published in uh, like shortly after the American Civil War, about the 1860s, by this guy named Samuel Smiles, which is an awesome name if you're going to be in this <laughs> genre. Yeah, right. and, and he wrote a book called Self Help. And it's, it's actually, if you read it, it's really smart. Like if he published that book today, you'd be like, I don't know, this book has a lot of stories about things in history that, that people aren't going to remember and a lot of big words in it. But it's basically like a book of stories from smart, successful people in history and how they overcame adversity and helped themselves become successful, right? That's that the genre self-help is about helping yourself do what you want to do and and being of service to yourself, right? That's sort of the idea. That's where the word that's where the phrase comes from. Right. Which is which is very different than um, you know, 
I think some of the worst books of the genre today, which might just be telling people what they want to hear rather than actually giving them anything that they can use to help themselves. Yes. So, and that brings us to your book, The Obstacle is the Way. I read it for the second time. It's, Ryan, it is so good. Oh, thank and, you. And you do what you just explained that the Smiley Guy does. You you share stories throughout history um, to, to prove these different points. And I think the best way that we learn are through stories. One of the things that you wrote that I wrote down, and I would just... I want to read it. I would love you to expand on it because okay. I don't think because you just mentioned that a lot of self help they tell you what you want to hear, and um, here it seems like you do the opposite. So you wrote many of our problems come from having too much rapid technology disruption, junk food traditions that tell us the way we're supposed to live our lives. We're soft, entitled, and scared of conflict. Great times are great softeners. Man, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like the like an old man who's like <laughs> these days because I because I'm not really in a position to do that because I'm sort of one myself. But I I think you know what I was sort of what I realized when I was researching for this book is you're like you're looking at all these people throughout history who dealt with like problems that are very similar to yours, right? To yours and mine, right? It's like mm-hmm. oh, like they had to move across the country and and to to start a new job and like. That was scary, or you know, they were they were dealing with a boss who who thought they were um, you know gunning for their job and they got fired, or you know the the stock market crashed, or or you know any number of these things that you and I deal with. Plus, they dealt with a lot of worse things that we dealt with, right? Like so the it's plague, like, yeah, yeah, right. It's like you're reading Marcus Aurelius and he's talking about how you know just because someone is rude to you or doesn't appreciate a favor that you did them you know, doesn't mean that you should take it personally or stop doing favors for people, right? Like, this is something he's saying. And then you realize historically, he's also in Rome writing this while the plague is killing thousands and thousands of people, right? And so it's like, you realize that life has gotten progressively easier every year. And and not, not that life is easy now, but it's certainly gotten easier as we've eliminated problems from the world, right? I, I read this great essay recently where he was he's saying everything gets weirder. And he was talking about that that plane crash that recently happened in, in France, the, the German airliner. And then he was talking about the, the Malaysian flight that's like disappeared. It's like it used to be we didn't know how things could fly. And then we got things to fly. And then we've slowly improved the technology to the point where um, we pretty much know everything that could go wrong um, in a plane except these random crazy events. And he was talking about sort of how spoiled we are, right? And, And that's sort of what I realized in the book is like, as life has gotten easier and easier and easier, we now find it harder to deal with the problems that a thousand years ago they would have thought was really easy, right? So it's like you have a jealous coworker, that's not pleasant, and there are things you can do about it, but it's nothing compared to the plague. So clearly we're capable of dealing with this. Um, we just don't think we are because we're sort of our muscles have atrophied. Right. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with my dad years ago. He was hit really hard with the real estate crash. Mm-hmm. And I was worried I was worried about him. And I had a conversation with him and he, he seemed so calm and level headed and just determined to find a way out. And I asked him, I don't understand. Like everyone is panicking. Like how are you sure. okay? And he goes, oh, I grew up in Argentina. We have like an economic crash every 10 years. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. like you, you just get used to it and you realize you have, you still have to live your life. I mean, it's, it's it, another way to think about it is like evolutionarily, we wouldn't be here if our ancestors hadn't survived. Uh, like you and I are descendants of people who lived through the great world depression. Right. And we're, we're. We're, we're people who we're descendants of people who lived through the dark ages, right? Like we wouldn't be here if the human the human species wasn't capable of dealing with intense amounts of adversity and difficulty. It can just feel like in the moment that we don't know what to do or we're not capable of dealing with it. And that's why stoicism says like, look, just step back and view this with a little bit of perspective and it'll be easier. 
Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about this whole concept of the obstacle being the way. A lot of people, sure. they face a challenge in their life. They feel like it's unfair. They get frustrated and they, they just get to the point where they're like, I know I want to change, but I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to do. So when you see an obstacle, what is your thought process? Well, so the the Stoic mindset essentially says that everything that happens to us is like an opportunity to practice excellence or they would use the word virtue. They would use the word virtue and and virtue has somewhat of a sort of pretentious conscious or uh, um, pretentious context. So like I I realize that might alienate people, but the idea is like, look, everything that happens to you is an opportunity and and because you might not control what happened but you do control what your response to that situation is going to be. And this could be a minor situation, you know, like um, you're working on, uh, you know, you're writing something and then your computer crashes and you lost what you wrote. Like, how do you respond? Do you quit? Do you sit down and write it again, but better? Or it can be, you know, some unimaginable uh, adversity, like the death of a loved one. How are you going to respond to that? How are you going to, how are you going to choose to carry on? Um, are you going to mourn the rest of your life or are you going to, you know, let this person be an inspiring example to you um, and you're going to carry on their legacy, right? So it's like whatever we face, we can decide how we're going to respond. And so that that's what I try to apply at least in my own life. And and thankfully, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not, you know, I, I live in America. I'm, I'm male, which has certain benefits. I'm white, which has certain benefits. Right, like we're, we all have privileges, right? Some have more privileges than others, but we're we're all pretty privileged people. Um, but we we face we face difficulties, and if we can try when we face those difficulties to say, "Look, I'm going to try to respond to this really, really well. I'm going to do the best that I possibly can to respond to this." In in a way, what that means is that the more difficulties you face, the better you are because you've created this sort of pattern or or um, you know, track record of of excellence. Like I, I quote Andy Grove, who is the CEO of, of Intel, where he's saying, you know, bad companies are destroyed by by a crisis. A good company can survive a crisis, but great companies thrive because of crises. Like they take advantage of it, and that's where they they gobble up the competition, or they launch a new product, or or they you know they they let everyone else die off. Like a a really great company does really good in turbulent times. And I think it, we can we can do that as people as well. Right. And it goes right back to the way that we're viewing what an obstacle means. Because we're always giving things meaning, right? So yeah. one person has an obstacle and they look at that as the reason they're not meant to succeed. Right. Yes, totally. Right. Like this is, so basically it's like your perceptions can be a source of strength if you decide so. Or they can be a, a weakness, right? If you're always telling yourself that, you know, this is bad news, um, this is impossible to recover from, this is really unfair, this was totally unexpected, um, you know, all of these things, they make it really hard for you to, you know, like get up off your ass and do something about it. Right. So let's talk about doing something about it. When we yeah. feel like we're faced with an obstacle, I think a, a common feeling is just feeling a bit paralyzed or just scared that we'll, we're not going to be able to face that obstacle because we're, we're, we're kind of standing and still looking at it and feeling overwhelmed. So how do we get to that place of taking action and how do we know that we're going in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, I think like what a lot of people do is they just like wait for things to solve themselves, and that usually doesn't happen, right? They wait for a goat just to walk into their house. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? It's like you know, you you like you'll talk to a friend who might be like having some sort of problem, and you'll you'll sit there and you'll work through like a whole bunch of potential solutions to this problem, and then you'll leave, and then you'll talk to that friend again like two months later, and they'll be like complaining to you about the same problem. And then, so I always go like, Oh man, so none of that stuff worked. And it turns out it's like, no, they just didn't do any of it. You just wanted to like commiserate about this problem. You didn't actually want it to go away. So in, in terms of, of actions, right? Like stoicism is not the secret. It's not just about saying like, Oh, I'm going to see this as good. And therefore it is good. It's saying, okay, where others might see the negative in this situation, I'm going to look at at potential positives that I can make out of it 
with my choices and with my actions. So again, right, where a computer eats your document, you can say like, oh, it wasn't that important, I don't care, and then get up from the computer and leave. Or you can say, you know, all right, now I have a clean page, I'm gonna start from scratch, I remember what I was working on earlier, but I'm going to do it much better this time. That would be the sort of stoic idea. Mm -hmm. Can you, you know, in your book, you share so many stories. Can you share a story about stoicism in action? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I open, I open the section with, um, with the story of Amelia Earhart. She's, you know, she's, she gets her pilot's license. She wants to be this sort of great female pilot. Um, but this is the 1920s. There's not exactly a lot of opportunities for that. Um, a, a rich donor uh, creates a grant that is that is designed to have its the first transatlantic female flight, right? And they they offer it to Amelia Earhart, but it comes under like certain conditions, right? The conditions are um, she has to sit in the back of the plane. She doesn't actually get to really fly it. Um, she doesn't get paid, although the male pilots do. And so she's basically this sort of like figurehead on the first flight, right? right. Um, and and I totally get that. I totally get what the normal reaction to this situation would be because I think we've all been in it, which is to say, like, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Like, this is so insulting. I would never do that. But of course, she accepts the offer. Uh, she ends up, you know, becoming quite famous because of the flight, and then she uses that platform to become a real incredibly talented, incredibly brave pilot all on her own, having sort of gotten her foot through the door. And I think, you know, what I like about stoicism is this idea is like, you're not too good for anything. You know, no one can really insult you unless you let them. There's that Eleanor Roosevelt line about nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. That's a very stoic idea as well. Um, instead of like, I, I saw this in the, when I, when I left college, uh, my class graduated into the financial recession and I saw all these, these kids like leave school, not get the job that they wanted or thought they were entitled to. And so they just said, well, I'm going to go back to college or I'm going to move back in with my parents. The idea that they would have to start at the bottom rung of something and work their way up to the top was like repugnant to them. And and I don't really get that. I don't, I don't get why that would be a good attitude. And I, I would, I would say that's very much a long sort of stoic way of thinking. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's becoming so common. I have a friend who has a startup, and she was saying that, you know, she has these new employees, and she'll ask them to do something that's not very glamorous, and they'll argue that, you know, and she sure. she remembers that when she started, she didn't care if you asked her to mop the floor, she would do it. But it, that mentality seems to be missing more and more. Yeah, totally. I mean, we we're talking about softeners. I think, you know, this we're living in some of the most educated, you know, times in history, especially in our generation and in our peer group, right? Mm -hmm. More and more people are going to college, which is great. But going to college does not exempt you from ever having to do something that you think is beneath you. Um, it just means that you you have a lot of education, right? And you like the the path to the stop to the top is still um you know, defined in, in a lot of ways by by what you're willing to put up with. Right. And what I love about that section of your book, too, what I took from it, is even if I'm doing a job that I don't see directly leading me towards what I want, it's still worth doing a good job because I'm doing that job. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a cliche where it's like how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, and, and that's the idea is like, just because this particular task is not glamorous or not impressive or not important is not an excuse to not do it well, right? When the Stoics are saying everything is an opportunity to practice excellence, they're not just saying, hey, in the, in the inspiring times, you know, or, or those big opportunities where other people might be discouraged, you know, you're going to courageously go on and, and, and do something impressive. They're saying it's like, Hey, look, when you're asked to sweep the floors, you should do a good job sweeping the floors because it's the right thing to do. Yes. Yeah. And the reality is when people look at us or, or anyone else, right, that you might look at from the outside and go, oh, it seems like they have this really great, adventurous, glamorous life. There's a lot of things in my life that I do that are, very, that are not glamorous. And I think I've gotten to this position because I'm able to do those things. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, part of being part of success is that it obscures all the hard work that went into accomplishing the success, right? Like, you know, when when someone looks at a book, they see the final product. They don't see all the drafts that went into it, all the research that went into it. They don't see all the terrible stuff that got cut out of the book because it wasn't good enough, right? right. Um, and they think that the author is some like sort of magician that just pulled this, like there's this, um, you know, there's that line from Hemingway where he says like writing is sitting down at a typewriter and bleeding. Yeah. So, which of course is not what writing is like at all. Writing is like sitting down and working your ass off until you have something that's really good. Um, and so people have this image of what success should be like, and they kind of try to reverse engineer getting there, but it's just not how it works. Right. And, you know, someone could be listening to this and going, well, this also sounds a little bit depressing, like we have to really torture ourselves and do a lot of hard work. But when you go back to the Stoics way of seeing things, it seems like you can actually enjoy all those things so much more because you don't have all of the the judgment around it. Yeah, I mean, look, like what the Stoics would say is, um, and this is something I had to think about when I was doing the book is, okay, what is what what part of the process is in your control? Um, writing a really good book that you're proud of, um, making sure that it's accurate, making sure that that it's you know it's it's as good as it can be, um, that it looks as good as it can be, that it's got your best effort into it, that you put you know the maximum amount of work that you could put into it, all of these things, right? The, that's the part of the the book that you do control. What you don't control is after it's been released, how many people read it. Or whether it's successful or not, right? Um, you don't can you control the effort. You don't control the results. Is what the Stoics talk about a lot. You control mm. so and, and so you control the effort. So you you better enjoy that part. Like if you're putting in a ton of work on something, like let's say it's a book, and you're only gonna be happy if the book is a massive success. Well, now you now what you've done is essentially put yourself at the mercy of external events. So like one of my friends, um, he, he, he worked for like years of his life on this book. And the day it came out was the day that Hurricane Katrina hit. So he like all of his media attention that, that, he, had, that he had worked really hard on, that he assumed was going to happen, it all went away like that, right? Because it wasn't in his control. Now the book went on to be successful after because he didn't give up. And, and the book is really good and things went back to normal after that. But the point is, you never know what's going to happen, right? Um, what, if, what if your publisher goes out of business two days before your book comes out? What if um, you know, some terrible crisis happens? What if you die before the book comes out? All these unpredictable events could happen. So you better enjoy the sort of um, the intermediate. You better enjoy the, the present or the process or else you are... You are essentially just hoping that everything will go right to justify all the pain and effort that went into something. Right. I've been thinking about that a lot. And even the other side, when things do go really well and how you react to them. Like, you know, I had my first book come out. It's done really well. Sometimes I'll go on Amazon when I'm bored mm -hmm. and I'll like read some reviews. And yeah. then a kind of conversation I had with myself was, you know, I read these positive reviews and it's so great. But if I get so excited about those positive reviews and I make those positive reviews be the reason that I can feel good about myself, then when a negative review comes around, it's going to break me down. Totally. And so yeah. I have to look at that those positive reviews. Obviously, I like them, but if I if I value them so much and let them make me so happy, it's really taking my it's it's giving someone else the responsibility over how I feel. Or it's it's giving someone else uh, power over your happiness yeah. and over your ability to say whether something was successful or not. Right, which is which is really unfair, and it really puts you in a position to be unhappy because like, why, why would that happen? You know, it, it, it might not. And I mean, a, a lot of writers talk about this. It's like, if you read the, if, if you read the positive reviews and you let them say something about you as a person, then you, you kind of have to read the bad reviews and that's, it's going to feel like they say something about you as a person and they don't. The only thing that says something about you and as a person in your creative work is the work itself and the amount of time and energy that you put into it. Mm. 
when it when it comes to just how you live your life, Ryan, like you're yeah. you're a bit of a rule breaker, right? Like in a good way. I guess I don't know. I, I think you are. I think I'm okay. a bit of a rule breaker as well. Okay. I think I think in order to be successful, you have to begin to care less about what other people think, or else you're paralyzed in fear. And sure. it's something that I work on too. Like I think as I grow older, one of my goals every year is like my hope is that I just continue to care less about what other people think so I can clearly listen to my own heart, to my own truth, what feels right to me. In positions when you're when you need to make a decision and you feel the influence of the outside world. I mean, do you ever get scared about what other people think? And if you find yourself in those moments, is there a thought or a story that you grab onto? Yeah, totally. I mean, so so yeah, caring a lot about what other people think is like sort of a, a very short-term strategy. And it has certain benefits um, until those benefits turn out to be like really big negatives, right? Because then you're like a slave to what these people think all the time. And, and that's not a pleasant way to live your life. I mean, so what, what I try to think about are, are, okay, here are the standards that are important to me. And here's, here, the, here are the sort of objective measures that I want to weigh my success or failure against. And then you constantly have to be referring back to those rather than other things. So it's like, Okay, let's say you decide that you want to live your life a certain way, you want to run your business a certain way, you know, these are the things that are important or um, valuable to you personally. And so you go about it and you, you start to have success and, and whatever. And then you look over here and here's this person that you went to high school with or this person that you met at a party or a person who's also in your space who's achieving a totally different kind of success, right? Maybe they're making a lot more money than you or like, their book hit the New York Times bestseller list and your, yours didn't or any of these number of things, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're like, you feel, even though yesterday you felt really good about yourself, now you feel crappy. And you feel crappy not because your accomplishments changed, but because you just started comparing them to somebody else's accomplishments. And what we never do in those situations is think fully about um, who that other person is, what you know, what decisions they make and what sort of cost they bore, um, you know, for, for making those choices. Marcus Aurelius talks a lot about this in the meditations where he's like, you know, you care about these other people's opinions, but you know, the, the things that they do in their private lives that you have zero respect for. So he's basically saying, he's like, why would you care about the judgment of someone who cheats on their spouse or, you know, is dishonest in business or has committed terrible atrocities, um, you've got to be able to, to tune that stuff out and focus on the standards and metrics that you've made for yourself. So I don't know if it's about breaking rules. It's just about deciding which rules are important to you and observing those rules and leaving the other ones for everyone else. Right. I feel like when it comes to this way of thinking, it's not something that we're born with. So I think it's so important to always be reading and reminding ourselves of these of this way of thinking do you have certain triggers or certain um either books you turn to or visuals in your house that kind of bring you to that space of of feeling that stoic kind of calmness and ability to look at things with a level head yeah i mean look i i've been you know reading the the stoics on a on a very very regular basis since i was 18 or 19 years old. And I've, I've internalized a lot of that. And I think that's been really beneficial. I have a bust of, of Marcus Aurelius on my desk that it's, it's this, this marble bust that was, that was, uh, made in like 1820. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to me to think that like, um, how long ago that was and how sort of timeless the ideas are within it. And that like somebody else might've had it on their desk, you know, 200 years ago. And that it might've sort of given them a similar amount of, of comfort. I, I like mm -hmm. that. I think about that a lot. And then usually I'll have like one or two quotes um, framed above my desk. And those quotes change over time, but um, the quotes are usually like a reminder of things that I want to think about or, or need to be aware of in order to sort of maintain my sobriety or, or whatever you want to call it. 
Right. That's awesome. Well, I really recommend that everyone picks up your book, The Obstacle is the Way, and I'm going to put it in the in the show notes. I have a few just last minute fun quick fire questions for you. Let's do it. All right. So um, the first thing is, what is something that no one would know about you unless they went to middle school with you? No one would know about me that I went to middle school with. Unless uh-huh. they went to middle school with you. Okay. Um, you know, do you know uh, Manish Sethi? Yeah. Well, not very well, but of him, yeah. So he and I went to middle school together. No and way. now Yeah, yeah. And he's Ramit's, he's Ramit's brother. We grew up in the same small town. Um, I really don't. It, it's funny. Um, I feel like you would have to ask him that question because I really have no <laughs> idea what someone would not know about me. Okay, and so Ryan, what is something that you do when you just want to let loose and have some fun? Um, I usually so you know Samantha. I I usually just do whatever Samantha wants. <laughs> it's always fun. That's what I do too. Yeah, That's totally. perfect. We have the same answer. Yeah. Uh, if someone wants to really get into philosophy, if they feel inspired by this conversation, besides your book, what are some other books that you recommend? So uh, I would read Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, uh, the the Gregory Hayes translation. Um, I would read uh, Letters from a Stoic by Seneca, I think is really good. Um, I also like uh, Penguin has a small collection of Seneca stuff called On the Shortness of Life, which is very good. Um, The other two books that are not sort of actually ancient philosophy, but are about ancient philosophy um, one is called What is Ancient Philosophy? And then the other is called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And those are by Pierre Hadot, and they're two of my favorites as well. Awesome. I'm going to check those out. And then our final question, you really need to think about this one. Okay. Uh, if you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? If could be any animal, what would I be and why? Um, not a goat, because I'm actually <laughs> watching my goat headbutt the fence right now. So. <laughs> That doesn't that doesn't seem uh, very very pleasant. <laughs> Inspiring. Uh, I I like dogs a lot. I think dogs live constantly in the present moment. Uh, they're totally spoiled by humans. They have to do essentially none of the other difficulties of wild animals, and they don't seem to miss any of it either. I love that. That's a good answer, Ryan. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, I had a great time. Anytime. And that concludes our show. Thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time with Ryan. I hope you did as well. If you want to learn more about him, his favorite books, some cool notes about the show, make sure you go to thetappingsolution.com forward slash notes. Also, if you like this podcast, subscribe and share it with your friends. Tweet, Facebook, let us know what you think. Next week, we'll be back with Pam Grout, the author of E Squared. Until then, take care. Take care.